and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola, who's coming to us from the UK, where he's covering Julian Assange's uh, trial, extradition trial. So welcome back to the show, Kevin. Yes, yes. And I am in the Royal Arsenal, as they call it, which I think is the perfect and most appropriate name. This is the, this is the I guess, subdivision or the neighborhood near the prison, closest to the prison. And that just kind of drives home the militarism behind all of this or, the, or the, the force in which this country is trying to help the United States bring Julian Assange to trial. <laughs> Yeah, um, he, like, I want to actually, like, I'm basically going to be interviewing you for this show because we're going to talk about the Julian Assange trial. And before we get into the specifics of what you've been witnessing, uh, I think it's really uh, important to know how little coverage it has received. I've actually been quite shocked. I don't know if it's because we're in Democratic primary season, so people are just solely focused on the horse race, but this trial presents the greatest threat to press freedom that we're dealing with today, uh, possibly of our time. Um, I'm speaking about like people who are our age. Uh, so it's just really shocking like that, uh, you know, the issue of Julian Assange isn't trending. The, the trial just, I have just haven't seen, I know it's being covered, but it just hasn't been a headline news item really. You're right. Uh, I, this so this unfolded over like let's say it was I believe February twenty fifth uh, sorry February twenty fourth twenty fifth twenty sixth and twenty seventh and I've been keeping an eye on what was being covered instead of the Julian Assange extradition proceedings because I'm here and I'm I'm curious how people are getting news about this are they seeing well not only do i wonder are you seeing my reporting but are you seeing anyone's coverage of this who from the united states was covering julian assange's proceedings and then i'm also interested in who around the world is covering this as well generally speaking the world press outside of the u.s is much much better at covering this story and have been interested and that's because there's some politicians from these European countries, particularly Germany, who, ha who who traveled to the United Kingdom to be observers and actually watch the proceedings. I think that's actually a fascinating thing to tell people who listen to our show because there's absolutely no one who's a staffer of any member of Congress who came to this proceeding this past week to just observe what is unfolding. And it, yeah. And it also probably had someone done that, it probably would have been like a contra like a controversy. Yeah, it, it likely uh, would have US. been. Like, oh. Yeah. And and so what happened Monday was I figured that this would be headline news maybe every top of the hour that at least it would be paid lip service where someone would say that the extradition started. It it cause technically speaking, the official extradition proceedings kicked off this week. This is this was the first hearing in multiple weeks of proceedings that are going to take place that will ultimately determine whether this judge, this magistrate court judge in the UK, approves the extradition. We mostly focused on legal arguments, but it was still an opportunity for the first time to hear the cases from the prosecution and the defense. So I, I figured the media would give it some kind of coverage. 
But even here in the United Kingdom, BBC News, uh, it, it didn't make it into the the rotation of every hour being a headline that was mentioned. On Monday, it was competing against the Harvey Weinstein verdict, and so mm-hmm. that that pushed it out of the way. The coronavirus outbreak has, and I think it's it's okay that this has captivated people's attention in the media. It's a serious problem. Uh, a pandemic is always a, a possible pandemic is always a tremendous issue, but that has made uh, it's been a competitor. So that has taken up airtime, and then right there's also the fact that you have the Democratic presidential primary that has been the focus of the world of progressives, and even people on the left right. have been very focused on what's happening with this war inside the Democratic Party as Bernie Sanders has become the surging candidate who is tremendously popular. And in fact, it seems like while I've been away, more and more people feel like he's the presumptive nominee. And that is very earth shattering to United States politics. So that's impacted on the attention that has been given to Julian Assange's case. But at the same time, I don't think those are excuses. I don't I don't think that that justifies the number of media organizations in the US that didn't send anybody here because by and large there were like 60 or 70 journalists that wanted to be at court this past week and if I had to guess how many of them were from the United States probably less than 20% were mm-hmm. people from the United States uh and I think that says something because this is going to be a U.S. story, and even here in the United Kingdom, it's largely a U.S. story because we've initiated this, and we're trying to bring Julian Assange, a journalist, to trial. Right, and I guess, like, you know, let's... Uh, I don't want to name any names, but I have been really, really disappointed in the number of progressive outlets who have completely ignored the story. Um, and you know, like there, there aren't other reporters from American progressive outlets there. Like you're the only one. Um, and I'm talking about outlets that have resources to send a reporter. Like it's not that difficult, but I want you to, for our listeners who like just a reminder or who maybe don't really understand in really simplistic terms, why is the prosecution of Julian Assange such a threat to press freedom and to journalism? Because very simply, the arguments that are being put forward criminalize journalism. They are saying that Chelsea Manning, who I'll remind people that as this is unfolding, she is in a jail cell in Alexandria, Virginia. She owes somewhere around $330,000 plus in fines to the U.S. government because she's being fined $1,000 a day. Again, that's just staggering because this is the kind of punishment that she's enduring for her grand jury resistance. And she's been there in jail. Uh, She's been incarcerated for defying this grand jury for not testifying for it's, it's almost a year. We're coming up on the year mark that this has been what she's been enduring. And so that that's a crucial element is that Chelsea Manning was his source at, was Julian Assange and WikiLeaks's source provided these documents and wanted to reveal uh, war crimes, wanted to reveal e- examples of diplomatic corruption, wanted to reveal 
how uh, Guantanamo detainees were being uh, detained, why they were being detained, and how those facts were actually inaccurate, that they were false reasons for keeping these people in a military prison at Guantanamo. And the list goes on. We could we could talk about a lot of this. We could do sh entire shows just going over this information because it's had such an impact. And the United States government is saying that no, Julian Assange was not a journalist. No, Chelsea Manning is not a source. They've, they've come up with a contrived conspiracy theory where, where in fact Julian Assange is this kind of a hacker who is hostile to the United States government and recruited Chelsea Manning to be an insider or spy for WikiLeaks within the U.S. military. And uh, Assange has essentially been uh, manipulating Ch Chelsea Manning all along. In fact, the prosecutor talked about Chelsea Manning in such a way that she's consistently trying to further the agenda of WikiLeaks, even today. Like, like even today, being in jail, she's only doing that because somehow she's being manipulated by WikiLeaks to resist the grand jury. There's no agency on the part of the U.S. prosecutors. They have to, they have to maintain this idea that she's just a pawn of WikiLeaks in order to make them seem nefarious. And so they have this contrived theory that Julian Assange made her, like, like told her, go get these documents, t told her, release these specific pieces of information about the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, about the, this massive database of U.S. diplomatic cables, and that Chelsea Manning never made this decision herself. And then by making that argument, you're suggesting that a journalist is a co-conspirator. You're saying that he's part of a conspiracy to steal documents and to commit a crime. And it goes right to the publication of information, which is the core aspect of press freedom, our ability to publish information that is in the public interest. That is exactly what Julian Assange and WikiLeaks did. Uh, it'll probably come up in the course of our conversation while we are chatting here, but the efforts of WikiLeaks were intended to change public policy, were intended to change the way governments uh, managed and operated. They, they wanted to have impacts on the war. They wanted to have impacts on how diplomats interact with other diplomats and world leaders and the, the, the extent to which they cover up misconduct behind closed doors. And that is public interest journalism to want to release information to have an impact and to publish information before elections so that voters can read information and make informed decisions and decide that they no longer want to support you know, Democrats who have been working against the interests of the working class or to oppose what military officials are doing because they are lying about the wars to the civilian populations. And that's the essence of what WikiLeaks and Julian Assange have done over the last 10 years. And that's a really, really good explanation. I want to ask you specifically about the trial. What do we know about this judge? What we know about this judge is that her name is Vanessa Baratzer, and I, I believe that she is 
someone who has very little information out there about her, so it's hard to get a public profile. Uh, but she answers to people in uh, the authority that runs the UK Magistrate Court. I think she's somewhat new when it comes to this whole work that she's being asked to do. So she's kind of a underling who's no recognizes she's in a position where it probably wouldn't be in her career interest to go against the grain too much. Which is why when I watched the proceedings, I got the sense that she's looking for any technicality, uh, any small detail, any finer point in someone's legal argument. The sort of things that we would hear and go, oh, that's deep in the weeds. That doesn't matter. It doesn't make any sense to me. She's going to seek refuge in that in order to justify this extradition of Julian Assange because while she might recognize the larger issues, the prosecution, if they give her a reason that can justify, in her mind, going ahead with this extradition, she's going to take it because culturally... I believe the legal profession here in the United Kingdom, as much as the legal profession in the United States, just wants this person to be out of United Kingdom. They don't like him. He's been here, you know, he, when he was in the Ecuador embassy, they hated him because he was sucking resources from the UK government. I mean, that was their choice, but they blame him for it because they spent millions upon millions of dollars in security around the UK embassy to essentially keep a close watch on him the whole time that he was in the Ecuador embassy. So the strain on resources, what they're going through now and having to prosecute this international case that has got world global media attention, that puts a strain on court resources. And I think they just blame him for it and they want him gone. And I believe that she's willing to go through the motions and do whatever it takes to find some finer minutia that she can seize upon to justify extraditing Julian Assange. We also have reporting from uh, De Declassified UK, a couple of journalists here in the United Kingdom who uh, have been supportive of my work. So I'm, 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 I'm thankful for them. But uh, also that Matt Kennard and, and Mark Curtis have been covering these these people in the uh, magistrate court that have conflicts of interests. And there's there's Lady Emma Arbuthnot, who her husband ha have been known to be very linked to United Kingdom foreign policy officials. And she's kind of like the chief magistrate of this whole process that Vanessa Baratzer is underneath serving. So you, you've got these issues and questions about conflicts of interest of people who are part of this entire extradition proceeding. I see. So, I mean, that that's like, it's all really uh, disturbing because to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know what your prediction is. And that's what I'd like to hear next. But given what you've said, it sounds to me like he'll likely be extradited. I know the process is like this was the round one and there's like a second round of these procedures in May or June. Um, yeah. But it seems like that's ultimately going to be what happens is he'll be extradited to the U.S. Do you foresee anything different than that taking place? 
I don't want to say for certain. I, we are just speculating, but mm-hmm. the the May June hearing is going to be an evidentiary one where witnesses from the government and the defense are able to take the witness stand and to to present their cases, present information that's useful to to those cases, and the defense is going to take full advantage of this opportunity to put evidence out there to try and convince the judge that there's abuses of process that have been going on. But it's a very small area that they have to argue against the extradition. There's a very restricted window that they have that they can put these kinds of arguments out there for the judge and challenge the extradition. And meanwhile, the prosecutors, what they're saying, and I'll see if you follow, because if you don't, then I have to get better at this so that I can communicate to the world what's going on. And so essentially, the prosecutor is, and his name's James Lewis, the prosecutor is saying that the United States-United Kingdom Treaty is not an extradition treaty that applies to the Julian Assange case. What applies is the UK Extradition Act, which is the law that's in UK domestic law that was passed and signed and and uh, came into force in 2004. And the reason why he's making that argument is because that law was passed without something called a political offense exception. And then for those who do not know what a political offense exception is it is a universally accepted norm throughout the world that you do not extradite people for political offenses and this has typically been used to protect dissidents because you may have i'll just use an example that is culturally acceptable to the united states you may have somebody from china who does not like how they've been treated by their government who flees to another country China might pursue the extradition of that person and they would be protected from extradition because they committed a political offense. All they've been doing is opposing their own government. I'll give a specific example that actually relates to this case. There's a whistleblower named David Shaler who was part of MI5. He was in France. He was pursued for extradition, I believe, in the late 1990s. The French Court of Appeals rejected because he committed a political offense by disclosing information that revealed that not only the intelligence agencies knew about attacks against the city of London, and um, I believe there was uh, some kind of a, a consulate or some kind of facility in Israel that was attacked that they knew about this ahead of time, but he also exposed that MI6 had been plotting to assassinate Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi and that he exposed this kinds of information and he exposed some kind of intelligence operation against labor leaders, people in the labor party in the United Kingdom. Um, And so he was pursued because in releasing this information, he also named agents that were part of the intelligence apparatus. And so he's in France and he wants to fight his extradition, and the Court of Appeals in France rejected his uh, his extradition because he had committed a political offense. And, and so that political offense exception is now missing 
in the UK Extradition Act because the United States around this time, this was the height of the global war on terrorism. So the United States government was going around to countries and saying, you have to remove this from your laws so that we can extradite terrorists to the United States, people we suspect of terrorism. That happened, and so it got written out of a lot of different countries' laws, and now we're seeing the collateral effect of that is now the U.S. can take advantage of it in order to bring Julian Assange to the United States, potentially. It's a kind of carve-out that means that Julian Assange can be deprived protections, protections that are supposed to stop the government from arbitrarily detaining you, protections that are supposed to give you an ability to challenge the way in which an extradition is being brought against you. You get... I'm seeing that the defense feels like they're very limited in what they can do on Julian Assange's behalf because of the technical legalistic argument that the prosecutors are making. Gotcha. Um, Kevin, like, what do you think is the most important takeaway from this, uh, this last week? Or I guess you've been there a whole week. Yeah. What's the most important thing to take away from that? I still feel like the whole operation that was conducted against Julian Assange with Undercover Global, the Spanish security company, is one of the most unreported aspects of this case. It goes virtually ignored in the United States with people just simply not wanting to pursue any additional information related to what happened. And yet, it's very alarming this private company, this, which was owned and run by David Morales, got a contract with U.S. intelligence to target Julian Assange while he was in the Ecuador embassy. It started in, I believe it was 2017, if not 2018, that this was being done explicitly. And it happened it coincided with the change in the government the change in the government because Rafael Correa was president of Ecuador he is the he was the left-wing left-leaning president who gave Julian Assange asylum back in 2012 and with Rafael Correa out of power you now had a right-wing government in Lenin Moreno that wanted to mount a pressure campaign to force Julian Assange out of their embassy in the United Kingdom in service to U.S. government interests. And so they were willing to escalate this spying operation against Julian Assange and to work in tandem with the U.S. intelligence agencies to find some way that he could be picked up and and, and, and wind up in the custody of the United Kingdom or even maybe the custody of the United States. So David Morales, we heard in the court, this has been reported in the New York Times, but it didn't make as much of a splash. So I seized on it because I thought, whoa, this is amazing information. David Morales traveled to Las Vegas in 2017, I believe, met with Sheldon Adelson in Las Vegas when he attended a security trade fair. And Sheldon, who is this oligarch of the Republican Party, 
one of the biggest, most massive donors to President Donald Trump, a bankroller of Republicans, gave Morales' company a contract to do security for his yacht. But also on the side, as this was happening, this was when the U.S. intelligence contract about the same time period was inked, and he was able to go back across the pond to Spain, and now his company had this contract where they were going to plant microphones all over the embassy and target not only Assange, but they were going to collect information on his lawyers, they were going to collect information on visitors, they were interested in Russians and any Americans that came to the embassy to visit, and they were targeting journalists who came in to interview Julian Assange. And so this operation was um, multiple months long, and then you had whistleblowers from the company who eventually left and revealed to El Pais or became part of this case that the uh, that his, his legal team are pushing in Spain because there were privacy rights that were offended. There are, there are different laws that they allege were violated in Spain by this company. So you have a, this case unfolding in Spain while this extradition proceeding is happening in the UK that could have some effect on what is what the defense is able to say in relation to their extradition. You could actually make an argument that the extradition proceedings should be suspended for the moment until there's an outcome in Spain and they can have a ruling because if their rights are violated, if there's a decision from Spain that crimes were committed against Julian Assange, that might be helpful to Julian Assange arguing that he should not be extradited. Uh, but they planted these microphones all over the Ecuador embassy and we heard about people who work for the company coming in every 14 days to take the microphones and change them out, uh, that the CIA and other intelligence agencies had access to a server where these uh, the contents that were collected were uploaded and they could go through the archive of all of these uh, conversations and uh, access that material. And that these whistleblowers who are now part of the case had a breaking point where they no longer were willing to be part of this. And obviously I say I wish your ethics had come into play much sooner. But ethically, they started hearing David Morales talk about wanting to kidnap Julian Assange from the embassy wanting to poison Julian Assange in the embassy, wanting to do the kinds of things that we know historically the CIA were contemplating that were absurd and wild as a way to target Fidel Castro in Cuba. It's just what the kind of what like I compare it to in my mind because like they really wanted to do anything they could to get to Julian Assange and eliminate this person, it seems. And <laughs> the... The kidnapping scenario was, oh, we'll just accidentally leave the door to the embassy open at some point, and it won't be obvious that we were doing anything deliberate, and then when the door is just open and nobody hasn't shut it, people can swoop in and snatch Julian Assange and take him away. And so uh, this is, this, there's a lot of wild aspects to this when you talk about this espionage operation that was carried out against Assange in the embassy. And it's had an impact. It's had an impact on his ability to believe that he has his fair trial rights protected in these proceedings. 
he stood up and interrupted court multiple times because he does not feel like he can participate in his proceedings as a defendant. And he does not think he can have confidential conversations with his attorneys. And there's nothing that the judge has done to meaningfully protect this right. And he's complained because when he's talking with his lawyers, there are microphones throughout the room. Who knows if one of those microphones isn't being fed somewhere and being kept, uh, whatever it picks up, isn't being kept in some kind of database that the UK intelligence agencies or the US intelligence agencies have access to so that they can monitor and spy on these people throughout this case. Uh, it's not unheard of for him to have this paranoia because he went through this while he was in the embassy. It's so crazy to like, it's so crazy. This isn't a bigger story. Like <laughs> When you lay it all out, no, I'm just like thinking here, like it, when you lay it all out like that, like this should be the headline story. And you know, all the attention while you've been covering this this week has been focused a hundred percent on the democratic primary, which to a degree I understand, but then there was a debate this week and like, they didn't ask about this issue. I don't think this issue has ever come up during a debate ever. Uh-huh. Not once. Yeah. Not that I, I mean, unless I didn't mistake, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would like to know, I would like to hear Bernie Sanders uh, address the issue of Julian Assange and, and, and what ha- what, what's been done to him and what's happening to him now. You know, I think the only candidate who's even said anything is somebody who isn't at the debates, which is Tulsi Gabbard. Um, and maybe Joe Biden said something in the past to the effect of, like, you know, Julian Assange deserves death or something. Um, but I, this should be an issue that is discussed during debates, and it's not. And it's like, it's like when you lay everything out, it's just, it's so, it's so dangerous what's taking place. And then the bigger danger that presents itself is that nobody cares. Yeah, just for the record here, I have Bernie Sanders' statement when the New York Times put a question to all the candidates last year, and I documented what each of the candidates said, and then I also responded to what was said that was just total bullshit. But what Bernie Sanders said was actually a pretty good statement. The only quibble you could have is that he doesn't specifically speak to Julian Assange and talk about him individually and, 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 and what he did, but he made a decently good statement that suggests if he's elected, he's not going to go forward with this prosecution, which was, it is not up to the president to determine who is or is not a journalist. The actions of the Trump administration represent a disturbing attack on the First Amendment and threaten to undermine the important work that investigative reporters conduct every day. Uh, Marianne Williamson actually had a pretty good answer, and she's endorsed Bernie. Um, and she said the Espionage Act is a relic of President Woodrow Wilson's prosecution of Eugene Debs, who was a socialist, for opposing his military frolic in the Soviet in the Soviet Union. The act violates freedom of speech and press by criminalizing publications without proof that the disclosures were intended to and did cause material harm to the national security of the United States. The First Amendment does not permit a British-style official secrets act for classified information. I would drop the Espionage Act counts against Assange. Uh, Yeah, but then you're right. Tulsi Gabbard has been one of the strongest candidates on this particular matter. And Joe Biden uh, has been pretty 
terrible as one would expect because he was part of the Obama administration when these leaks happened. He's on record as calling Assange a high-tech terrorist back in 2010, I believe. And he himself has made statements that he starts his statement about Assange that he gives that he gave to the New York Times by saying that government officials have compelling reasons to keep national security information confidential and professional journalists have long recognized and respected those reasons. Unlike WikiLeaks, responsible journalists historically have declined to publish information when publication would put lives in danger or threaten harm to the national interest. So right there you know like your bullshit alarm should go off. He's making an argument that actually concedes ground to U.S. prosecutors, suggesting that, like, I, I, I get it. I know what you're doing. I would be sympathetic to prosecuting him as well. So even if he ultimately decided not to prosecute Assange, he's and Joe Biden's not going to get elected, but even if he was president and he understood not to go ahead with this prosecution there's still other things underneath that he would allow because he doesn't see Julian Assange as a journalist. Right. Um, and the other thing, Oh, and the other thing to point out is that Mike Bloomberg is not on the record on this issue as far as I can tell. But I think you can guess what Mike Bloomberg would think given his like hawkish stance on like everything. He'd be worse than everyone that I've mentioned. Uh, I mean, you, whatever I said about Joe Biden, multiply it by three. Right. Exactly. Um, on that note, is there anything else? I mean, I do want to tell our listeners, you know, Kevin is one of the only journalists from the U.S. that went to cover this, uh, especially from progressive outlets. Like even The Intercept, which is an outlet that was founded on the idea of publishing leaks, um, doesn't have a reporter there as far as I know. Uh, so I highly encourage people to go donate to the gray zone or I'm sorry, the gray zone. I said the gray zone, but the gray zone too. I think you, you might be writing an article about this for the gray zone at some point, but to shadow proof. Yeah. I said, no, I I do like the gray zone. Those are our friends and you should donate to them as well. But I do highly encourage our listeners to go donate to shadow proof that this, like they, you know, this, that's the sort of support that gets someone like Kevin to go to the UK, you know, uh, it's not an easy thing to do to travel to another country to cover something like this. It's expensive. It takes a toll on you. You're like moving across uh, uh, time zones and also during this like, you know, potential pandemic. Um, so it's like a, t- a time like this. No, no, no. I'm being serious, though. It's a time like this when uh, it's more crucial than ever that if you have the means to you support independent media and shows like ours and websites like Shadowproof. There are a couple issues that I think are worth raising, and and they're things that I'm not sure that you heard about, Rania. So, uh, would you would you like to hear about the allegations against the the Trump Justice Department uh, offering Julian Assange yes. a pardon? This is a very important. Yeah, this is a very important issue because it was like a breaking story before the trial started, and it seemed like bullshit. Okay, so I don't think it is, but I think the way that it was reported was totally wrong because. What you have are people whose brains are poisoned by the Russiagate mania that heard this, and in their brains, they have Julian Assange associated. This is how propaganda works, right? They have their they have their minds associating Julian Assange with someone who published information from Russian intelligence or a cutout that was working with Russian intelligence, when in fact we've really never had that proven ever. 
And so then they hear this story about uh, Trump offering a pardon. And immediately what they think is, oh, Trump was trying to get Julian Assange to participate in a cover-up of Russian meddling. And uh, that's really bad. And uh, in fact, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. And what happened was there was a meeting that took place in 2017 with former Congressman Dana Rohrabacher and also a far-right journalist activist named Chuck Johnson, who, again, like, I don't know why Julian Assange is meeting with these people. Uh, I'm not in his position. I'm not here to judge. So if any of you are like, why is he meeting with these people? Try to, like, put that out of your mind and just focus on the larger issue of what the Trump administration is doing here. Because with the threat of prosecution, it is apparent that the Trump administration or Donald Trump personally was trying to extort some kind of political benefit from Julian Assange. So he's in this conflict. Whether we agree with what is being said by Democrats or not, politically, he's got an interest in trying to shut this down so that he can move on from it all. And he apparently was working through Dana Rohrabacher, if you believe the defense's allegations, that uh, they, they were saying, okay, if you can give us some evidence that the source of the DNC leaked emails is not from Russia, if you can share that sourcing information with the administration we might be able to work out a kind of win-win deal so that you can exit the Ecuador embassy and uh, be free and no longer have to fear for the fact that you'll be prosecuted. And that to me is an example. The the defense compared this to the way in which we've seen other low-level prosecutions happen that are tangentially but not really that much related to the allegations of Russia collusion that were never proven because all these people like Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, uh, you go down the list, Papadopoulos, who were accused of these crimes, a lot of them are process crimes, not even related to anything involving a conspiracy, so to speak. But be that as it may, Trump's been willing to offer pardons to people who he thinks are going to maybe do favors for them in the aftermath or if it's going to reflect well on him or because they've remained loyal to him, he offers a pardon. And I think this is kind of a part of the way we're seeing abuse in this case. There's a, politi there's a politicization of this case in the U.S. Justice Department. And I know that people have a tough time maybe accepting this, but I am able to hold a complex view. So I can say very clearly that the Obama administration stopped at the point where they needed to and did not pursue a prosecution against Julian Assange. Now, there is the critical issue of never ending the grand jury. They never dissolved it, so it was still in existence. And Trump, the Trump administration could just come into power and use it, as they have done now. But the Justice Department recognized that they could not indict Julian Assange without going after journalists at the New York Times or the Washington Post or any other media organizations that worked on publishing these documents. 
the fact that the Trump administration comes in, you have Attorney General Jeff Sessions who loathes and hates leakers. You have Donald Trump talking about stringing up leakers in public squares because he just doesn't like anyone who's disloyal and speaks out against his administration. Somehow manages to be even more hostile to leakers than Barack Obama. And then you see that it becomes political. Like the choice to go and prosecute Julian Assange is a political choice. And that's evidence that they're bringing forward to the judge, hoping that she can see he's not being prosecuted because he committed a crime. He's being prosecuted because he's on the wrong side of politics in the United States. And it's improper for you to approve his extradition. Sorry. Um, yeah, I think that that's a really uh, good way you just put it. That should be like the headline. Julian Assange is on trial for being on the wrong side of politics <laughs> in the U.S. And think uh, about it. And think about it, Rania. Uh, what I just described to you: Trump abusing his pardon power. Doesn't that sound like an MSNBC show? Doesn't that sound yeah, like an a, hour? That's, I mean, doesn't that sound like an hour of Rachel? Of Rachel Ma- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's another thing too. Is you know this is a time when. The media, especially MSNBC and CNN, has been so um, alarming, you know, alarmist about Trump and Trump's um, assault on the press. And it's like, what bigger assault on the press is there than literally criminalizing journalism as he's doing under with Julian Assange? But like these same people don't say anything. And I, you know. Like Jim Acosta, Jim Acosta having his White House press credentials revoked for like a week was, you know, oh my God, this is the biggest threat to press freedom. Trump is an authoritarian. Everybody fucking lost their shit. Um, Okay, Jim Acosta's press credentials being revoked for a week don't even come close to the threat posed by Donald Trump uh, with this uh, Julian Assange extradition, but you don't hear a peep. And, uh, you know, there's this other aspect of this case, too, that received more attention from Politico in the past week. There's this new intelligence chief named Richard Grinnell, Rania, who is actually linked to all of this in the same way, similarly to what I just described with Dana Rohrabacher, where um, the, the allegation against him is that he told Assange's Ecuadorian hosts that if the U.S. government would not pursue the death penalty for Assange, then uh, the, then in, in exchange, Ecuador could allow British officials to enter the embassy in London and arrest him. And so he was he was dealing. He was kind of manipulating the process behind the background, um, and and they want to bring that up that politicization of the process. So. Uh, there, there's that. Um, I think another good aspect to raise right now, just very clearly, is that Chelsea Manning's grand jury resistance has been so enormous for Julian Assange. I could see watching these proceedings when the defense referenced her chronology of events. They called it the best chronology because they were using it as a reference. And this is in 2013. Before her trial, she pled guilty to some offenses, and then she laid out for us why she released all of these documents and and meticulously talked about how she managed and handled the information, the decisions she made, why she picked WikiLeaks. She talked about preparing the information, 
how it was uploaded and transferred. She got into technical details. And this is how we understand the timeline of events. And as I've said before, it does not match up with what the government wants to argue about Julian Assange. And so they have a problem, but they haven't been able to break break Chelsea Manning in such a way that she sits before the grand jury, begs for mercy, and gives them some kind of information that would impeach her or undermine her past statements, which would then be useful to making the claim that Julian Assange was a co-conspirator, was involved in committing a criminal conspiracy. And so I could tell because uh, the, the prosecutor was visibly angry that uh, the statement was being referenced and said, you can't rely on a self-serving statement without any qualification whatsoever. It's a self-serving statement of a co-conspirator. And he insisted that this was just the product of somebody who has been consistently trying to help out Assange. And uh, I can tell why they're frustrated. <laughs> if I was a prosecutor, this statement would be something that would be getting in my way because as you want to selectively put forward information and ignore important details, this looms over you as the truth of what happened. And you have to find some way to rebut it or else it undermines your entire case against extraditing Julian Assange. But then even worse, it undermines any chance that the United States government has of ever putting Julian Assange on trial and convicting him of crimes because the whole narrative is a, a, a fictional story that has been created by the U.S. government about the WikiLeaks founder. So that's an important thing to mention. And then as we begin to wrap up our conversation here, I'd like to just raise the issue of the glass box. Do you know about the glass box? I do not. Okay. So do you know about secure docs? Have you ever heard of a secure doc? No, and, that is a completely unknown term to me. <laughs> it is a foreign concept to me as well, because in the United States, we allow defendants to sit with their attorneys and you do not get put in a glass box in the back of a courtroom uh... or off to the side of a courtroom and mm. you are not humiliated as a defendant. Your fair trial rights are not undermined. Your presumption of innocence isn't undermined at least in that manner, there are other ways that it might be. But uh, this is a very vivid example in the UK legal system, and it's modern. It's a modern invention to erect this glass cage, so to speak, in a courtroom where the defendant sits away from their attorneys and not in the well or the, you know, the, I guess, the floor of the court that's in front of the judge and it is something that defendants struggle with because it makes it hard to hear the proceedings makes it hard to communicate with the attorney when you want to give your attorney information they can't see you potentially when uh, you want something explained to you they don't know that you need that explanation and so it limits your ability to participate in your defense. And Julian Assange has complained about this. He complained about it a lot over the past week. And 
the judge was given a request by the defense to allow Julian Assange to sit with his attorneys, and absurdly, she said no. But the re the reason why it is so absurd, Rania, is because James Lewis, the prosecutor, said that the U.S. government was neutral on this issue and did not care if Julian Assange sat with his attorneys and recognized that he was having a lot of problems following along and proceedings would run more smoothly if he could just sit with his attorney and they could speak with him. But the judge was like, well, we have this standard procedure and I am not going to be pushed around by Julian Assange and change this procedure for Mr. Assange. So you'll remain there. And it got even more ludicrous because we're going to have this three-week evidentiary hearing that's supposed to last for three weeks. And she said, I'd be okay if it went from three weeks to six weeks, if that was what it took in order to allow you to participate in proceedings, because we could have frequent, we could have frequent breaks. You could have more opportunities to exchange notes and like communicate in, in, in written ways with your attorneys. It'll allow you to have more meetings before court starts. We can start later in the day if you want to have meetings in the mornings with your attorneys. This is all so that she can maintain this keeping Assange in the glass box and not giving him his fair trial rights. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's just like, and there are like countries around the world do not do this. Like this is a thing that is falling out um, of favor. I would actually say that that one country that this reminds me of to a degree is like Egypt when they would put people in cages well, during are, trials. You know well, what I mean? Well, there are, uh, I guess to be clear, most Western countries do not do this. I mean, yeah, this, most, this, yeah. this, this, it is a, it is a part of, I mean, no, but my, my, my point of comparing it to Egypt is that Egypt is not something you want to be compared to. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's like an extreme police state. Right, like um, uh, I remember the images of Mubarak, who was like catatonic, just being in the cage, and it's like, like horrible. And Mohammed Mohammed Morsi, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is this is just astounding. Like she is, and this is how this is a good way place to end this because this is the way extradition proceedings ended. This was the last thing that happened in this case. It's the last thing that will be on people's minds going into May is that this judge is undermining the right to fair trial for Julian Assange in a way that human rights organizations recognize, that press freedom organizations recognize, that even parliamentarians who are in Britain and throughout Europe recognize I don't know if this case is going to start to take on political ramifications here in the United Kingdom where uh, there are, are, are certain issues that are raised. But but we've seen that the court just really doesn't care about protecting the rights of this defendant, of Julian Assange. And if this is how he's treated here... I can't imagine what he's going to go through if he's brought to the United States because at least here in the United Kingdom hanging over the court is the fact that there is the European Court of Human Rights that eventually gets to take a crack at all of this and review what was done in the case. So she has to pretend to care about human rights to some degree and I don't think she's doing a very good job. But we don't have that in the United States. We don't have this 
body that the courts have to answer to that tries to legally and it doesn't really enforce it, but tries to set legal norms of how human rights are protected. We just, we just don't have that in the U S obviously the Supreme court could not be further from being a human rights court. It just like actively undermines human rights in the decisions it issues around the death penalty and other systemic problems and other, other, other matters related to mass incarceration. And you go down the list, but like here in the UK, there is a European court of human rights that, actually does see putting defendants in a glass cage. It's a glass cage around you. He like sits back there and there are little slats in the glass for which he can put his hand and stick notes through to his legal team if they see him. And that's the extent of his communication and participation in the proceedings each day. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty callous. Totally. And on that note, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap with no. a, a couple no. of things I'd like to say about coronavirus? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, you can say whatever you'd like about the coronavirus as I as I hunker down in my hotel room and keep safe from the cosmopolitan areas of London where I, I don't know where people are, are coming from. But just let me just quickly say uh, thank you to those of you who have followed my work this past week. Uh, I've, I've seen some tremendous support from people and I could not have done this work without you. Uh, I did live tweeting then video reports after each day in court. And then I did reports that were published at shadowproof.com that you can go read as Ron, you mentioned earlier, one of them was republished to the gray zone. Uh, there may be another piece coming with the gray zone, but then there's all these other media outlets that I've had the opportunity to talk to. And Anya Parampil is going to have a Red Lions interview with me that will be shared if you want to hear some more. Um, there'll be overlap between the two interviews, but if you want to hear some more conversation and, and what Anya had to say, uh, you could go to that interview. But just just thank you. There's been a lot of people who have chipped in and donated, and it's it's amazingly crucial that people like you chip in and give two and three dollars a piece even is, 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 is not it's not even small. It's not small at all because if uh, if a couple hundred people give three bucks each, that's a large amount of money that is useful for an independent media organization to fund this kind of reporting. And it hit home for me, Rania, because I was there on the final day and I was maybe one of three or four U.S. journalists that was still covering the extradition proceedings. We had an NBC News producer, and then uh, there was me, and then Nathan Fuller is from the United States, but he doesn't work for a media organization. He works for Courage Foundation, which is like a defense campaign for WikiLeaks, but he was doing his own coverage on Twitter of what was happening in court, but that was the limit of what, that's the extent of journalists that were there. Everybody else was a foreign journalist. Everybody else was from Europe and other parts of the globe. And I'm, I'm glad that they were there to report for people in their own countries. But uh, why no longer Reuters and the Associated Press? They weren't there. Uh, there were uh, nobody from the Times, New York Times, Washington Post was there. Nobody from CNN was there. And like you, like we've said earlier, these progressive media organizations were completely missing in action and not there. 
And uh, it just brought home that like the importance of having people fund my reporting so we can make sure that people know what's going on in this case. Exactly. Um, and then on that note, the one thing I wanted to say is, uh, you know, anyone who's made it this far into our show, obviously there's the coronavirus is like becoming, I think it's going to be a big news story for the next couple of months because it's going to ruin economies. Um, and uh, I've been kind of obsessively following it since it started because I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac, not to- not like in a really crazy way, but just a little bit. Um, and so whenever there's like a looming pandemic, I get a little freaked out. But uh, it's just the one thing I wanted to note on this show, and we'll talk more about this kind of stuff later, is that I think it's going to wreak havoc on the U.S., not because the U.S. doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with it, because I think it actually does, um, more because people just don't have sick days or if they do, they're scared to take them. So I guess my point is it's almost like a PSA. If you don't feel well, don't fucking go to work. Like, <laughs> yeah. seriously, don't go to work. Like, it's no, it's really crazy in the U.S. because not only, like, do people not have sick days or they'll go to work sick, and I think this is why the flu ends up spreading so much in the U.S. Um, because people don't feel comfortable taking off of work or they can't afford to. Um, but also people don't have like good health insurance or, you know, if, or they don't have it at all and the doctor's just too expensive to go to. So I can foresee a situation where, um, in the U S it spreads, especially the people who prepare our food in the U S like people who pick our tomatoes, people who prepare packages for Amazon, these kinds of people who do work that, you know, if they're unhealthy can really impact the rest of the country do not have good labor standards where they can take off of work <laughs> um, or have like, or afford to go to a doctor. So my point is for those of you who do have the luxury to do that, uh, <laughs> just do, you know, do it. I live in a country right now, you know, I'm in Lebanon. It's a third world country. The health infrastructure is not good. It's undergoing an economic collapse and there's already a few cases here. And it's not so much so like crazy terrifying cause it's going to kill you. Um, the mortality rate isn't that high. It's more a matter of like this virus is just going to shut down economies. Um, it already has in like northern Italy. It already has in China. Uh, and we'll see what's going to happen in the U.S. But I do think there's an interesting argument to be made for Medicare for all uh, based on the outcome of the spread of this virus. <laughs> because your, your community yeah. is only as healthy. No, you're, in this case, when a virus like this takes place you're, that has no vaccine and is just wreaking havoc, your community is only as healthy and resilient as the poorest among you because the people who don't have health insurance or who can't, you know, afford to take off work, them getting sick and, or, or being in a position to spread it is going to impact you. That's right. And are you aware of the example or one of the more salient examples of this person who got tested when they developed flu-like symptoms and then ended up with like thousands of dollars in bills. I can, I can just basically. No, I haven't heard this. Yeah. Okay. This, I think this was a viral tweet because I think he took a photo of himself. Uh, But here's the story and he's from Miami and he had flown to China. He was worried he might have the coronavirus. So he returned from Miami would have been in January his name's Osmel Martinez Askew, and he found himself in a position where he had developed flu-like symptoms just as the coronavirus was ravaging the country he visited. He would have gone to CVS for over-the-counter medicine and fight the flu on his own, but this time he thought 
it was more serious. He felt it was his responsibility to his, to his family and his community to get tested for novel coronavirus. So he went to Jackson Memorial Hospital, where he said he was placed in a closed-off room. Nurses in protective white suits sprayed some kind of disinfectant smoke under the door before entering. Then the hospital staff members told him he needed a CT scan screen for a coronavirus. This will be out of my pocket, askew who has a very limited insurance plan, recalled saying, and this is in the Miami Herald, by the way, let's start with the blood test, and if I test positive, just discharge, discharge me. Fortunately, that's exactly what happened. He had the flu, not the deadly virus that has infected tens of thousands of people, mostly in China, and killed at least 2,239 people as of Friday's update. So let's, like, a little, about a week ago, an exact week since we recorded this show, that's the death toll. But two weeks later, he got the bill, and he owed $3,270. My God. All That's because insane. he did the right thing. All because he did the right thing and went to the doctor and tried to present, prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Yeah, this is, I mean, this, I don't even know what to say. This is fucking crazy. Um the U.S. health care system is so fucked up yeah. uh, that people we already know people don't go to the doctor when they need to because they don't want to be on the hook for thousands of dollars uh, because our health our health care system is so expensive, even if you have insurance. And, and um, did you hear Nancy Pelosi step up to the mic and say there needs to be a vaccine that uh, we don't need to just cater to big pharma? It needs to be affordable. How about it needs to be free? How about it right, needs to be right. made available to everyone so that we can prevent a pandemic? Not yeah, your, bu I mean, not your ab affordable buzzword that's been used to prevent Medicare for all. You want to wrap up here? It's been good yeah, to chat with you. This has been a really great show. I'm really, really glad that you were able to cover the Assange case. Um, and I think like all of me and all our listeners, I can say, I can speak at, on behalf of all of them, appreciate uh you being on it since there's so few people who are and just like diligently covering the, um, the attack on whistleblowers and journalists alike, uh, for like the last decade. Um, let's give a quick, pro note, can we give a quick programming note here and just mention that last week we did the video broadcast episode and it went over very well. Everyone enjoyed it. And going forward, uh, as long as guests don't get in the way and as long as our schedules don't get in the way, we'd like to post, video versions of the podcast that'll be available for patrons and then the audio version that we've normally released over the last six to seven years will be available to everyone including people particularly people who are not our patrons who are not monthly supporters of the show and so then the video will be like the perk for being a regular supporter of the unauthorized disclosure podcast and you know again like We'll try to do these as often as we can because it got such a good reception and people really appreciated being able to see us. Yeah, so we're going to try that out and see how it works. On that note, thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you to our monthly supporters for your continued support for the Unauthorized Disclosure Weekly Podcast. To those of you who may be new to the Unauthorized Disclosure Weekly Podcast, we encourage you to go to patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure, 
patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure and become a patron of the show today. You'll unlock access to exclusive content, including upcoming video broadcasts of our episodes, and you'll also get access to exclusive bonus material that we produce related to the show. Once again, go to patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure. Thank you.